Radish curry. Uh, <laughs> good one. Uh, so why don't we take a few minutes break uh, and come back and start like in four or five minutes. Hmm. That we didn't get to. Yeah. Three stages of Vipassana. So I'm on uh, package 13, page 19. Oh, and I forgot all sorts of things. I forgot the chance. And due to modern science, I can show the readings. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. <clears throat> also, uh, in the root text, Treasury of Knowledge presentation by Jamgun Kongchul, the three stages of concentration. First, by childhood concentration, one perceives signs such as smoke, etc. Second, by the discrimination of phenomena. By discriminating phenomena, we experience equalness, equality. The sameness of pairs of opposites is realized in supreme concentration, samadhi, is accomplished. By focusing on suchness, all phenomena are seen to be emptiness, which in turn is realized to be peace by nature. Instead of like emptiness being some thing, it's the relaxation of all thingness. Now we have the Vidyadara's presentation on those three stages from the profound treasury of the ocean of dharma in volume one the path of liberation he calls them uh, acting like an infant equal taste and seeing things as they are the first stage is and he gives the tibetan chipa near chu Uh, 
the acting like an infant level of meditation experience. By the way, are we recording, Emily? I totally yes. spaced that out. Great, thank you. Um, it is like teaching an infant to walk. It develops from very intense shamatha practice, which brings up what are called visions of emptiness. Those are the uh, the ten signs of smoke and so forth. When you suddenly stop speeding and you become absolutely still. get a kind of backfire of speed within the stillness. It's like you're rushing around all day and suddenly you sit down and stop. It's like you feel like you're, the ocean is still moving or something because you've been speeding so much. Because you've, you're so confused between the stillness and the speed, you create visions or hallucinations which do not have any substance. It's like our perceptual systems disengage, are not quite synchronized with our normal subject-object framework of the world or, or goal orientation quality of doing this and doing that. And there becomes like this slight lag or slight uh, uh, skip in the record, the operating system. The Japanese people call these hallucinations makyo. Such non-existent hallucinations have no root or, or background. Things shift in front of your eyes. You begin to see smoke passing by. You might begin to have a sense that your toes are gigantic and your body is tiny. We have a gigantic head and a small body. Well, the ceiling is sinking above your head, coming down. You're being squashed. Or your zafu is moving around <laughs> underneath your butt. Your vision changes and all kinds of sounds are heard. Some people hear a complete orchestra with singing and chanting. Different tingling sensations occur in the body. Sometimes there is terror that you don't exist. Uh-oh. Such experience may seem profound, but as long as there is humor or play, I don't think there's any problem. In other words, don't take them seriously. Don't make a big deal out of them one way or another, either like interesting experiences, don't get hooked on them, or the terror of not existing. You know, little glimpses of like, where am I? Not finding like my familiar sense of self. It can be sort of disconcerting. Second stage is Ronyam, equal taste. Slightly higher stage, a little bit more on the adult level. You begin to experience the Four Noble Truths. Wow. On the second level, you begin to experience the Four Noble Truths. I guess this, this is the shift from Shama to, to Vipassana. He said the first one is Shamatha, intense Shamatha. And this one is, you're beginning to understand the Dharma. The Four Noble Truths the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. And you also begin to experience the simplicity of awareness. So although the sensorial hallucinations might continue, they don't mean anything. There's a quality of one flavor, one taste. Your shamatha practice continues in a very solid way. 
You've developed mental stability and you're able to stay with the practice because you're already completely involved with shamatha. You also begin to see the simplicity and straightforwardness of Vipassana. So at this second stage of equal taste, or one taste, shamatha and Vipassana are combined. That combination is the goal of the Burmese meditation schools in particular. They highly recommend the second character category of Vipassana as the most important experience. I think he means uh, this category. Seeing things as they are. The third stage is Teshin Mikpa. Uh, seeing things as they are, which is known as the Mahavipassana experience. So this is from a very early period where he was still using the scheme of Shamata Vipassana, Mahavipassana, Shunyata. The Mahavipassana experience creates the link between Hinayana and Mahayana practice, and in that you begin to experience emptiness or Shunyata. Emptiness. You sense that you are basically empty. Your psychological makeup, the embellishments you indulge in, and your thought process are all non-existent. Because awareness is very direct, precise, and simple, it brings spaciousness and a glimpse of shunyata. You begin to see not only simplicity, but emptiness or intangibility in Mahavapashana. So, not only simplicity, but emptiness. Presumably, the second one was simplicity, the equal taste. In Mahavapashana, quality of conviction begins to take place a primitive shunyata experience. So, it's a further step beyond equal taste, because with Mahavapashana, you have a glimpse that you are inherently nothing or absent not as a meditation experience alone, but as a kind of fundamental devastation. You know, he talks about this in some places of like uh, egolessness as being this sense of psychological desolation. In Mahavapashana, there's an enormous feeling of being helped out rather than helped in. <laughs> helped out of your cobweb of fixations rather than helped into some clear, structured view of our world. You're pulled out of whatever realm you're in into a realm or psychological state that's completely empty. You begin to realize that you do not have an origin and you don't belong anywhere. I don't know about you guys. Have you ever experienced like you don't belong anywhere? <laughs> Uh, you're treading on a path that's a path in terms of experience, but it's no longer a concrete experience, so there's a lot of fear. Fear at this stage, isn't that amazing? It's like the, the sense of desolation becomes intense. It's as if you're riding and you lose your grip on the reins. So all of a sudden you lose your grip and like, are you going to fall or be able to keep it together, or your car begins to go by itself and the steering wheel doesn't work. I don't know if any of you guys have a new car, but they have this feature now that keeps you in your lane. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, Anya, you told me about this too. Yeah, you you rented a car. Oh my God, the Thank first time. I thought something was wrong with the car, and I was on the freeway, and I I was like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> it's the weirdest I disabled, feeling. I disabled it, yeah. <laughs> you know, we all like change lanes here and there without signaling or or float, you know, a little bit between lanes. And, and the car like jolts you back. It's like, whoa. And, and it feels dangerous because it's like, in a, anyway. Something slowly begins to take over so that the path comes to you. You don't go to the path. Again, this feeling of like it's happening on its own. It's not like you are in in like the driver's seat anymore or in control of the driver's seat. Practice becomes constantly apparent. That's an interesting statement. Not really sure what that means. Practice becomes constantly apparent. Maybe it's like it's like there's a sense that you're always practicing. It's like always there. It's in your mind all the time. So there's a lot of fear and a lot of concern. Why would you have a lot of fear and concern if you're practicing all the time? Any ideas? Just uncertainty. Uncertainty about what? About whether your practice is in fact, uh, you know, effective, productive, if in fact it will en enhance your compassion, your skillful means. But he just said that it becomes constantly apparent. It, it, because you've embodied it and you're actually doing it all the time without having to think about it. But by the same token, when you know you take the time to think about it, you're going to worry you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or, or not as good as it could be. <laughs> but Mahavipassana experience can also lead to celebration. It depends on your attitude. If your attitude is that the world is playing a trick on you, if you're one of those people, you will complain to everybody or at least try to find a source of complaint. Got to blame it somewhere so that your ground will be solid and your ideas appreciated. You have to appreciate my experience. This happens to me. I need to tell you about it. However, if you don't have that attitude of competitiveness, then realizing that there is no ground becomes a source of celebration and joy, whatever relief it can be, that groundlessness actually. Depends if you have to go to work still. Going to work is a little bit hard with that sense of groundlessness. Can you, can those of you that work still, can you experience groundlessness or emptiness, like flash on emptiness when your boss is like really upset with you? Try it. It's like really mind blowing. I, th I think it's actually easier when there's something extreme like that going on. I think the harder thing is to keep in touch with emptiness when things are very ordinary. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. When things get very intense, it sort of highlights the quality of absurdity or and groundlessness. That's uh, that's a good point. <laughs> At this stage, the experience that you have nothing to hold on to is continual. Wow, that's a problem. And that experience will go on until a certain level of Vajrayana takes a different form with further sophistication. Wow, what a tease. However, in this case, it's just a simple experience that you exist, but at the same time, you don't have any ground. 
You have no ground because awareness is constant and the characteristic of awareness is emptiness. There's this empty awareness going on all the time and it has no source and no direction and no location. Both literally and figuratively. Awareness does not have a portrait, a reflection, or identification. So a positive feeling of nothingness becomes very real at this stage of Tashin Shik, Tashin Mikpa rather, seeing things as they are, Mahavapashana experience. In this Mahavapashana, it's as though you had been released. It's like catching a fly and throwing it out the window so that the fly flies away rather than being squashed on the table. The idea of release or liberation Mahavapashna discipline is to have a glimpse of groundlessness. The basic idea is that the closer you are to enlightened mind, the more your development takes you in that direction, the more groundless you are. This is not for the faint of heart, I have a feeling. In terms of the idea of egolessness, the closer you are to enlightenment, the less ego there is. So egolessness is the root of Vipassana, since the ego provides an ongoing ground and reference point, you are losing your foundation. Therefore, you are helped out of that foundation and reference point. You lose your reference point, you become thinner and thinner, so to speak. Wow, weight loss. Neat. <laughs> Vipassana experience cannot be given birth to, developed, or taught, unless there is some understanding of egolessness. Over and over again he says this. And so, studying the many talks of his on egolessness are crucial, and other teachings on egolessness, like over and over, just can't get enough of the repetition of what does egolessness mean. At the Mahavapashna level, you've been introduced to the egolessness of self, and you're just about to be introduced to the egolessness of phenomena, but you haven't actually been completely introduced yet. You just have a flu of it. There's just like this sensation. It's like your system is reacting to it, to the, to the increasing groundlessness that is focused initially on the sense of self. And then it's like an infection that spreads to the entire world around you. In ordinary language, shamatha is simply the experience of concentration. It's been said in the text that even hunters develop shamatha by one-pointedness with the target. Hunters develop their mindfulness or concentration, so you could develop a form of shamatha independent of vipassana. But to shift from that to a Buddhist type of concentration or shamatha, you have to have some experience of or feeling for egolessness. You have to have a you have a sense that there is that possibility that it is just about to present itself to you, and you practiced in that way. Interesting, saying that in order to do true Buddhist shamatha, you need to understand emptiness, not only vipassana but shamatha. Mahavipassana is influenced by the Mahayana. When you become highly trained in the Hinayana, thoroughly absorbed in shamatha practice, your outlook arid should be, I think, and your experience naturally become Mahayana-like. Where is that guy? Your arid outlook. There it is. Your experience naturally 
become your outlook and your experience naturally become Mahayana like no matter which any out of school you may be in. The various doctrinal or philosophical labels and distinctions are irrelevant as far as you are concerned unless you develop Vipassana and realize the importance of wakefulness. You will have only a few very distant you will sorry, you will have only a very distant view of Vajrayana or even the higher levels of Mahayana. It's necessary to have that kind of basic training and growth, so Vipassana experience and practice is absolutely necessary for a person who follows the Buddha's path and really wants to understand the Dharma, both intellectually and, and intuitively. Vipassana practice is necessary. That's an interesting statement. By saying this, he's saying that there's an intellectual Vipassana and an intuitive Vipassana quite clearly. You have to make an acquaintance with yourself. You have to meet yourself to know who you are and what you are. Without Vipassana experience, you know, and this goes, this acquainting yourself and meeting yourself and knowing who you are and so forth, that, you know, goes all the way back to uh, experiencing our, our cocoons, experiencing our realms, experiencing the portable stage set, the me-ness, me and my emotions, I-ness and am-ness, all of that stuff that we've been through. Without Vipassana experience, you don't have any idea of who you are, what you are, how you are, why you are at all. So it's very important, absolutely necessary to respect the need for Vipassana practice, experience and practice. Then we have this odd little segment called Mixing Mind with Space. Sure. And the, yes, ma'am. Sorry. I have a quick question about the last um, piece. Mm. I have touching us on this at the end, but how much should one be thinking of these stages as sort of a concrete progression that perhaps takes years or lifetimes to kind of go through and you have to really follow it versus like getting glimpses of it kind of bouncing around and getting glimpses here and there and the glimpses kind of snowball into something. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I'd say sort of 50-50. Sure. There's like this this feeling of like getting, as you said, just as you said, like getting little glimpses of things, little understandings, little flash experiences of this or that, that give you a little taste of this or that stage. And then there's the overall progression of the, the, the sort of uh, momentum of your existence, your practice, your state of being. Of uh, that gen gener more generally takes this linear approach of shamatha vipassana, shamatha vipassana, and uh, you know, in my opinion, what he's calling maha vipassana is really shamatha vipassana, the union. Right. So, okay. so it's sort of a balance between those two. Cool. Uh, let's see. So in this little snippet, and, and it's interesting, the context of this, mixing mind with space, this is in the Profound Treasury, but this appears in the 1973 seminary transcripts of his first seminary, three years after coming to America. And that seminary, he taught a very 
uh, detailed, traditional presentation of Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana in excruciating detail um, at great length. And uh, he presents the basic teachings of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths. He presents um, Shamatha briefly. He presents the Four Foundations of Mindfulness in great detail. And he presents uh, Vipassana, some talks on Vipassana. And then he goes in the Vajrayana section, he goes through the nine yanas. Um, and this happens in the, at the end of the talk on mindfulness of body. And remember his presentation of uh, the four foundations is, uh, the, is as the progression of shamatha as explaining or presenting the progression that Shamatha goes through is the four foundations. At the end of it, of the mindfulness of body, the first foundation, he's talking about different kinds of meditation on breath, and then he segues, so to speak, into this uh, description of two other kinds, really, of meditation. One is this sense of mixing mind with space, which is this very unique uh, analogy that's that's used as a technique in meditation practice that we've heard a million times, and is actually uh, comes from the earlier tradition in India, a late Mahayana tradition. Mixing mind with space. I should have showed the. Uh, the text that it appears in. Anyway, um, and then he so mixing mind with space, and he gives the Tibetan for it. Uh, first, he says we employ special practice technique, which is this experience of Chungne Drosom, and this is different. This is looking at the arising, abiding, and disappearance of thoughts. So we have where they arise, where thoughts arise, where they dwell, where they go. The three are accompanied. This is accompanied by the practice of Ying Rik Sewa. And so in the, in the Kagyu tradition, uh, this idea of mixing mind with space is, is expanded and elaborated on and, on, upon, and there's a series of mixings that are taught as various techniques, and one of them is mixing mind with space. And if you're interested, there was a course earlier, a few years ago, called Mixing Mind with Space. <laughs> and uh, I looked at the roots of Rinpoche's meditation practice, trying to trace sources for it, and there's this cool text that goes through the different types of mixing and this mixing. Anyway, um, and he goes through explaining the Tibetan mixing the mind and breathing. In either case, the idea is to experience space. You don't need to deliberately try to mix the mind with the breathing with a solemn effort. Instead, you're simply in contact with the breathing. It's similar to the way that you feel the well-being of your body. Now, he brings up well-being in the second mindfulness talk of what he calls that your livelihood. 
in being mindful of where the thoughts come from, where the thoughts dwell, and where the thoughts vanish. It's not that you're supposed to manufacture a thought and then let it come, let it dwell, and let it go. So this is one of the more traditional practices of, this is one of the key core introductory practices of the Mahamudra tradition along with looking at where's the location of your mind, where it's its shape, what's its feeling and texture and so forth. These two, that, looking at the, the mind's location and so forth, and then this, where do thoughts arise, dwell, and vanish to? As, as one thought vanishes, the next begins to arise. And by the, time the next thought has arisen, the previous thought has already disappeared. You cannot usually experience the vanishing of a thought purely by itself because to be aware of that thought, you sustain it. So you do not really see the vanishing. The vanishing of a thought is seen in terms of the contrast of another thought coming up, basically, at which point the previous thought has already subsided. Interesting description of the vanishing of thoughts little inside scoop on it. The arising and dissolving of a thought is not exactly simultaneous, but the beginning, middle, and end happen very quickly, very fast. When you acknowledge thoughts, they arise. Which came first? <laughs> In the process of acknowledging them, they dwell. After you acknowledge them, they drop. Acknowledging the dwelling of a thought does not mean staying with it for a long time, but just experiencing it as your thought. It's very simple. Thoughts are generally connected with one another of the eight types of consciousness, which are the working basis for the practice of meditation. And remember, he, before he uh, goes into meditation practice in 73 as well, I think, <clears throat> he goes through the eight levels of consciousness, a description of mind, because meditation is about familiarizing yourself with your mind. So you don't exaggerate in meditation the different levels of consciousness or disrespect them, but you have a balance and respect. Generally, you begin with your physical well-being, your posture and your sense of comfort or discomfort and your sense perceptions. Act as the fuse for your practice. Your sense perceptions, vision, sound, cessation, taste, smells, and thoughts. You act as the fuse for your practice. What can that mean? That's not a, a sort of... Um, uh, uh, sort of meaningless aside, you know, sort of, a, that's not like a casual, oh, by the way, that seems to be sort of a crucial thing. Sense perceptions act as a fuse, so being very precise about perception. Then when those sense consciousnesses be begin to wear themselves out a bit, you become slightly bored with them and turn to the subconscious mind. So there's an acute that we develop after we sort of uh, the cobweb of discursive thoughts dispel a little bit, disperse a little bit. We become uh, highly attuned to our sense perceptions, become very refined. And then that sort of dissolves that uh, experience of the of the uh, vibrancy of sense perceptions begins to dissolve a little bit and we begin to become more um, aware of the subconscious mind, deeper levels of mind. So we're sort of working down from the surface of mind into the core of mind. 
conversations are replayed, particular events in your life are projected back to you, projected back to you in the form of a cinema show. I think we've all experienced this in meditation practice, where like these these experiences and memories just come back to us out of the blue, or the ones that we're fixated on are like there. You sit down and, oh, right, there we are. <laughs> then there's a gap, a little gap where things don't happen and nothing occurs. Physically, you may be comfortable and at rest with the sounds you hear and the visions that you see around you may be somewhat settled down, but then you dig up further excitement by looking into your personal relationships and emotional involvements. When we settle down, then we start to, to dig further. Are people being nice or nasty? We try to interpret what's going on in our world. Maybe you remember a particular scene, experience, jealousy, passion you felt, and you plan your future. All kinds of thoughts come up. All of them should be experienced. If I said you should be aware of the thoughts, then you will get into an area of being watchful, which is a project, and you will find that you're becoming a slave to your own awareness. That approach to practice does not work. It's too self-conscious. So I prefer the word experience to awareness. That's an interesting one. Just experience whatever happens. If, if you say, be aware of it, then it's like a project. So that whole sense of relaxed relaxation as uh, resulting in greater presence. The meditation technique universally is uh, mindfulness of breathing. It's an expression of be breathing, uh, sorry, being. <laughs> uh, I don't think the early Buddhists thought about breathing, breathing in terms of prana or life force. Nothing mystical about it. Uh, traditionally, just being there is the outcome of the breathing technique. In the Tibetan tradition of formless meditation, you can also meditate without focusing on the breathing. That's like the Zen tradition of Shikantaza, just sitting. Some people, some people find it easy to do formless meditation without focusing on the breathing. If they're provided with a short session of sitting, it's easy for them to just be there because they do not have to hassle with any technique. However, for long-term sitting practice, it would be advisable to start with the mindfulness of breathing. Later, the awareness of breathing falls away, and at that point, you just go along with it. That seems to be the best, most systematic approach. So we see this uh, key text about that next. In terms of both breathing and formless meditation, breathing meditation form, one of the main the problems meditators experience is that there's a slight, almost subconscious, guilty feeling that they ought to be doing something rather than just experiencing. When you begin to feel it, you ought to be doing something. You automatically present millions of obstacles to yourself. Meditation is not a project. It's a way of being. You could experience that you are what you are. Fundamentally, sitting there and breathing is a very valid thing to do. <laughs> I wish I had that showed to my parents when they complained about me meditating too much when I was a kid. Anyway, uh, so here we have this excerpt from the Profound Treasury, Volume 2, on uh, formless meditation or emptiness meditation, which was sort of interesting. 
At the same time, shunyata is a meditative experience that regards neither the awareness nor the achievement of awareness as important. Your mind is not focused on any technique. There are no techniques whatsoever, not even techniques of awareness. Your mind is just open, simply open, simply being or non-being. So the shunyata experience is non-awareness as such, just being open. Awareness is still a reference point of some kind and that you're aware of something. With egolessness, of Vipassana. So this is the culmination, presumably, of Vipassana, where it turns into Mahavipassana or Shunyata. You, be, you are more aware of the doctrine, but once more aware of like the concept of experiencing egolessness. But once you get into Shunyata, you are less aware of the doctrine. It's just a question of being. Nagarjuna quite rightly said that if people viewed Shunyata wrongly, if they viewed it with very little prajna, they could be devastated. If there is little experience of apashna awareness or prajna-like wakefulness, then a shunyata experience becomes just a bundle of vague nothingness, which doesn't mean anything. Therefore, it is necessary to know that from awareness comes more warmth. So, I don't know, these, these first two sentences seem to be different, but basically he's saying you know, there's clearly wrong ways of experiencing and understanding shunyata, under, uh, understanding rather. And then this this uh, very interesting statement: from awareness comes warmth, and from warmth comes non-reference point. Really interesting uh, progression of uh, from awareness comes compassion loving kindness, compassion, and from that comes lack of reference point. We're not checking back. We don't have to check back anymore. That process is very important to know and appreciate. The point is that you can't begin with non-reference point. If you try to do so, you are simply making it up. It's very difficult to grasp a principle such as shun. It's not something you can do. However, awareness or mindfulness practice is something you can do. When awareness is no longer a battle, warmth arises as a natural process. You develop warmth through dissolving the possessiveness of you being aware and the world being strange. <laughs> is the world strange? Dissolving the feeling that the world is strange, having experienced that warmth, you begin to realize that you don't have to label it as belonging to a certain territory. So warmth brings non-reference point. There's no path and no goal. Your custom reference point has been completely cut through. It's gone forever. It doesn't mean going berserk. Just going berserk and getting so confused that you don't know who is who and what is what. Non-reference point is an intelligent perspective in which you begin to see that nothing is its own primary spokesperson. Wow. So non-reference point is not like this vagueness of like, I don't know what's going, what, you know, whether I'm coming or going or what's happening and who who's who. But it's an intelligent expect, uh, perspective in which you begin to see that nothing is its own primary spokesperson. What does that mean? That nothing like shouts its own existence. You see that everything is a repetition 
of something else so things do not speak for themselves. Wow, what does that mean? <laughs> They're just an echo of themselves. The experience of non-reference point is not a process of collecting reassurances so that you could be non-referential. It's just simple and straight non-reference point, absolutely open. You may find yourself very confused, wondering what to do, but instead of asking, what does one do in meditation, we just do it. There's an absence of technique, of reference point, purpose, and goal. You just sit like a rock. You can do that. You can just sit there and do it, but it's like the Zen Shikantaza technique of just sitting. The spiritual desire to attain enlightenment accompanies the entire Bodhisattva path. And there's also the desire to help other people, but those ideas are based on the perspective of a non-reference point. So it's not all personal. It's not at all personal. The whole thing is based on a personality. What an interesting shift. He's talking about reference point, absence of reference point. You just sit and do it. And then suddenly the spiritual desire to attain enlightenment accompanies the entire Bodhisattva path. Hmm. There's also the desire to help other people, but those arise from non-reference points, so non-referential compassion. Without the background of Shamatana Vipassana, you can't actually experience the Shunyata state of meditation. If you did not have any experience of awareness and mindfulness, you could quite possibly have problems if you tried to jump ahead into the Mahayana jargon of Shunyata. You might try to imitate the Shunyata experience to make it up without actually going through it. You might think, wow, that's a great idea and expect some kind of direct confrontation with reality. <laughs> I'm going to destroy reality. I'm going to make it empty. But somehow it's not at all that direct and it's not warfare. It's very simple, personal experience. The craving for sudden experience could instead lead to sudden nuttiness. It's like the story of the meditator was trying to see that everything is empty and non-existent. He was trying to subjugate his invented perceptions, his perceptual obstacles or demons. One evening, when he was in retreat, out in, his, in a cave, he went out for a walk, and while he was gone, his sister brought him a pot of yogurt. Plain yogurt. She waited and waited, and finally she got tired of waiting, so she left the pot of yogurt in his meditation cell, and when he came back, entered the room, he saw the pot of yogurt, it's getting very dark and hazy, he saw this huge eye. He thought the yogurt was an eye. This is Milarepa, by the way, it's a famous story. And he attacks it with his tattered robes, and it splatters all over, and then there's eyes all over the place. And he freaks out, and has a meltdown, and then realizes that there's no, nobody's attacking anybody. Lastly, we have this uh, interesting little relic that appears in volume one of the uh, collected works. Originally, it floated around for years and was mistakenly attributed to Kensei Rinpoche. And then when Carolyn pulled together the collected works, she discovered that uh, it was created by Trungpa Rinpoche and this gentleman named Rigzen Shikpo, who's uh, and that's his Tibetan name. His, his given English name was Michael Hookham. And he was one of Rinpoche's main students in England and started the Dzogchen Foundation and uh, received all these teachings on meditation and Dzogchen from Rinpoche. 
has a book called Never Turn Away, among others. Anyway, he gives a very, this uh, interesting text that talks about the Alia, the ground, not the Alia Vishnana, the Alia is below or beyond or above, some way beyond the Alia Vishnana. Talks about op- complete openness. This is a Dzogchen text, so I'm not allowed to really read it with you, but there's one part where he goes through the meditation technique that we should look at. Uh, let's see. Don't mentally split in two when meditating one part of the mind, watching the other like a cat watching a mouse. That famous phrase of his, don't be like a cat ready to pounce on the on thoughts like a cat waiting for a mouse. When performing meditation, once you get the feeling of opening oneself out completely to the whole universe with absolute simplicity and nakedness of mind, ridding oneself of all, all projecting barriers. One should realize that one does not meditate in order... Oops. In order to go deeply into oneself and withdraw from the world. When performing meditation, one should think of it just as a natural function of everyday life, like eating or breathing, not some special formal ritual to be undertaken with great seriousness and solemnity. One must realize that to meditate is to pass beyond effort, beyond practice, beyond aims and goals, and beyond the dualism of bondage and liberation. Meditation is always perfect. (laughs) That's a tough one. (laughs) That was perfect. That was a perfect session. Done that. (laughs) Chalk up another perfect session. Check. So there's no need to correct anything since everything that arises is simply the play of the mind. There's no bad sessions and no need to judge thoughts as good or evil. Therefore, one should not sit down and meditate with various hopes and fears about the outcome. One just does it with no self-conscious feeling of I am meditating. Without effort, strain, without attempting to control or force the mind, without trying to become peaceful. If one finds one is going astray in any of these ways, just stop and simply rest and relax before resuming. That's an interesting technique. If we're like really caught up in in our mind one way or another, it really helps to like just break, shift, and come back. If you get experiences, just observe them. Don't attempt to repeat them. The reasoning, this is opposes the natural spontaneity of the mind. This I love this. Learn to see everyday life as a mandala, and one which is at the center, and be free of the bias and prejudice of past conditioning, present desires, and future hopes and expectations. That's pretty simple. Uh, let's see. See the ironic, amusing side of irritating situations. Practical advice. Sort of like the slogans of Atisha, you know, it's like all this heavy stuff at the beginning, and then it's like these little snippets, little pieces of advice. In meditation, see through the illusion of past, present, and future. Free oneself about the past and so forth. Just plunge straight into meditation at this very moment with one's whole mind and be free from hesitation, boredom, 
and excitement. The practice of meditation is traditional and best if possible to sit cross-legged with the back erect but not rigid. However, it's most important to feel comfortable. So it's better to sit in a chair if sitting cross-legged proves painful. One's attitude of mind should be inspired by three fundamental aspects. Whether meditation is with or without form, although in the latter case the three aspects constitute the whole of meditation itself without, with particular emphasis on complete and openness. The three fundamental aspects were what we went through earlier, by the way. Um, oh, jeez, I went way too far back. Silly. Totally lost. Wandering, but not lost. <laughs> there you go. Complete openness, natural perfection, and absolute spontaneity. Complete openness, natural perfection, and absolute spontaneity, those three principles. Wow. Complete openness, natural perfection. Everything is naturally perfect. That was where he said that every practice is fine. Every session is fine. Meditation is always perfect. And absolute spontaneity. Meditations with form are preceded by, followed by, and contain periods without form. And similarly, it may often prove desirable, if not essential, to precede, precede a period of formless meditation by a period with form, balancing form and formless meditation. To provide for this, many preliminary meditations have been developed over the centuries, the most important being meditations on breathing, mantra, and visualization. The second and third of these types need personal instruction from one's guru before they can be attempted. But a few words on the first would not be out of place here since the method used varies little from person to person. First, here's the instructions. Let the mind follow the in and out rhythm of the breath until it becomes calm and tranquil. Then rest the mind more and more on the breath until one's whole being seems to be identified with it. Finally, become aware of the breath leaving the body and going out into space. So this is the shift from both breaths to just the out-breath. Extending that out into space and then gradually transfer the attention away from the breath and toward the sensation of spaciousness and expansion. By letting this final sensation merge into complete openness, one moves into the sphere of formless meditation properly. These may seem vague and inadequate. This is inevitable since they attempt to describe what is not only beyond words but beyond thought and invite practice of what is essentially a state of being. The words are simply a form of skillful means, a hint which, if acted upon, may enable the innate natural wisdom and the naturally perfect action to arise spontaneously. Sometimes those were the three aspects, by the way, right? I think complete openness, natural perfection, and spontaneous 
spontaneity. Sometimes in meditation, there's a gap in normal consciousness, a sudden complete openness. Hmm. This only arises when one has ceased to think in terms of meditator meditation and the object of meditation is a glimpse of reality of flash, sudden flash, which occurs at first infrequently and then gradually more and more often. It may not be particularly shattering, explosive, just a moment of great simplicity. It's like you have all these thoughts and things are going on and something, there's like a noise outside and suddenly you, you let go of everything and there's a shift in your mind and things just flatten out. Drop. Simplicity. Pema Chudrin talks about this. She's in this shrine room meditating hour and after hour. It's very hot and this fan is blowing, making a lot of noise. And finally somebody turns off the fan and it's like, whoa. Do not make the mistake of deliberately trying to force these things to happen. For that betrays the naturalness and spontaneity of reality. Oops. Your screen sharing is paused. Stop. Okay. So Now uh, we're on class 14. And uh, package 14 has little agenda on it. I mean syllabus, sorry. Thought I was in a board meeting for a second there. Conclusion. Overview of the practice of Shamatha Vipassana. And then input from everyone on how does the mind, how does this impact our practice and feedback on the course. And then I gave uh, a couple of little readings, approach to meditation. I talked to psych, psych uh, shrinks, right, psychologists. And then a uh, uh, little talk, why we meditate. I hope you found those interesting. Very cool little summary presentations of meditation. A lot of profundity in them. Any favorite lines? Anybody have like the favorite line for the the packet? Jane, give us the page number. Moment. Uh, <laughs> page number. Uh, page number seven. Uh, oops. Wait, you just pop the screen open. So therefore, yes, page number seven. Uh, Every situation then becomes a learning process. These situations are the book. They are the scriptures. You don't need any more than that. All right. Which on, class, on class 14 is uh, Finally. too little too late. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Damn, where was that before we had to read all this stuff? That's great. I highlighted that one too. That's great. Good. Any others? Anyone else? No? Okay. My, my favorite is, let's see. Dang. 
You'd think after 14 weeks I'd get the hang of this thing. My favorite here is page 10. You see, the problem is that analytical, analytical mind cannot be freed by another aspect of analytical mind until the questions of analytical mind are dissolved. Sort of referring to that image of the firewood burning itself out, right? This is the same as the method. Who am I in Ramana Maharshi's teaching? People, anyone familiar with Ramana Maharshi's writings and teachings? Who am I? Famous book by him, right? Who am I? If you regard who am I as a question, then you're still analyzing yourself. But when you begin to realize that who am I is a statement, the analytical mind becomes confused. I tried to insert this into the meditation. I don't know if you noticed that. My lame attempt to do that. But when uh, one realizes there's something personal about it, something instinctive which is freed by the actual living situation, by converting the question into a statement, the discipline technique of med practicing meditation amounts to putting yourself into an inconceivable situation in which the analytical mind doesn't function anymore. That was my that was my favorite favorite statement for this package. Putting yourself in an inconceivable situation in which analytical mind doesn't function anymore, is the discipline technique of practicing a meditation. That's what it comes, all boils down to. Anyone else? So, the overview, what was it on the agenda here? The syllabus. Overview of the practice of Shamatha Vipassana. So, the key part, the key parts of the practice, right, just to review quickly, are that Shamatha goes through these phases, these stages of um, whether you take different objects or the same object, where initially there's a, a very clear and sort of um, distinct solid distinction between the subject and the object of meditation. And then, and then gradually that subject-object uh, concretization gets softer, less distinct, less hard-edged as you begin to realize that the object of meditation is in your mind. because uh, we can't really experience anything that's not in our mind. Come to think of it. And then the third stage is where you realize that you're meditating on your mind. And there is no subject and object. So those are the three stages of shamatha. And one progresses through various obstacles and uh, in, uh, in obtaining that those three stages and progressing through those achieving those th three stages one pr progresses through various obstacles primarily agitation and dullness 
which are very broad terms that, you know, agitation is like discursiveness, any content, fixation with contact and dullness is any sort of sinking, like disconnecting from objects. And uh, the main factors, the main powers, you know, the six powers of shamatha, the main ones are mindfulness, focused attention, and then alertness, open monitoring, i.e. awareness. And then sort of around them is this overarching conscientiousness or carefulness. Those are the three big factors. Mindfulness, samiditi in Sanskrit, trenpa in Tibetan, alertness, samprajanya in Sanskrit, sheshin in Tibetan, and conscientiousness. Uh, I can't remember the Sanskrit, but uh, in Tibetan it's pakya. Pakya. <laughs> you do. Park you too. Um, and then Vipassana, shifting to Vipassana. So here's where we really have a different, uh, difference between uh, Rinpoche's presentation and the traditional. He sees pretty much on the same page. You know, uh, he presents those three stages of shamatha primarily through the four foundations of mindfulness. If you read them carefully, he goes through... The mindfulness of body is like this very solid uh, sense of subject and object. And this little glimmer of like introducing this notion of psychosomatic body, just beginning to introduce this idea that uh, the so-called object of meditation is a mental object. And then in mindfulness of livelihood, there's a refinement of the sense perceptions, similar to what we read earlier, where initially there's a obfuscation of by thoughts and concepts and emotions that occurs. And then gradually we begin to uh, uh, lessen our involvement with them. We get bored with them and experience some sense of cool boredom. And then our sense perceptions become more refined. We have much finer uh, experience of all the senses. And through that, then we begin to uh, sort of naturally um, sink into our deeper levels of awareness, our deeper, well, awareness is not a good term because it's a fact of meditation. So our deeper levels of our cognitive process. He described it in, the, in one of the readings tonight as the subconscious mind. We sort of start working on the subconscious mind. We start uh, exploring that region of like unformed thoughts and unspoken or unexpressed hopes and fears and emotions. And, you know, we're like starting, there we're, we're starting to get into um, the Aliyah Vishnana, the sort of storehouse consciousness. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the uh, sense perceptions, the refinement of sense perceptions creates a sense of wellness or, whole, or wholesomeness, well-being. 
that he describes in the mindfulness of livelihood or mind, which later he teaches that three, the four foundations three times. And the third, the second time he calls it mindfulness of life. And then the third time he calls it mindfulness of livelihood. Oh, sorry. Mindfulness of life force. Experiencing the energy of our being. And then we have mindfulness of effort. And there, there's, uh, as we sink down into the, into the subconscious, into the uh, murkiness of uh, our uh, storehouse of memories and hopes and fears begins to come to the surface of our awareness, of our, not awareness, of our consciousness. It's punctuated by little flashes of what he calls effort. He calls the third one mindfulness of effort. And it's like little little flashes of being there very vividly, of just being here. And um, coming back out of the murkiness, like shh. And through that, we then enter into the mindfulness of mind, which is where we begin to uh, get into that third level of the traditional presentation of shamatha, which is meditating on the mind, shamatha on the mind, on, the, on consciousness. And then um, in doing that, our sense of uh, presence, our sense of experience, let's say, he's used that term tonight instead of awareness, our sense of experiencing what's happening expands. And we, we begin to connect with spaciousness and have the sense of what he calls panoramic awareness or panoramic spaciousness. We begin to, to feel and sense everything around us. And ideally, through that, we begin to experience and understand what the me is, what the self is, what the ego is. It highlights the ego because of the sense of spaciousness. Uh, it's like when you turn the lights on in the room, you then see who's there. You know, when everything's dark, you don't really know who's in the room proverbially speaking, we're talking about our mind. But we don't really have the lights on. We're not that really clear of like where the ego is and what it is and what's it doing and how it's manipulating and operating. And when we turn the lights on through that expand, that deepened sense of shamatha and that expansiveness, then it's like the ego just like starts to stick out like a sore thumb. And we become hypersensitive to me. And by being hypersensitive to me, by beginning with actually acknowledging the fact of meanness, or fixation on meanness, rather, we begin to understand how to dissolve that and let go of that and experience the absence of reference point. And that ideally is how I, I seems to me of uh, how to reconcile Rimshe's presentation with the traditional presentation of Vipassana as being uh, understanding of egolessness. 
and the traditional version goes through a, basically the phase of analytical under uh, vipassana which which begins outside of meditation with study and contemplation and then progresses into meditation with a sort of light analytical process of thing of primarily what's the relationship between my self my sense of self and my body and mind the traditional version and gradually it leads to a non-analytical type of vipassana practice or actual unfluctuating non-analytical vipassana of knowing the nature of being knowing the nature of mind is being without center and fringe being without ego and the, the vipassana practice um, seems to go through uh, these two stages of uh, understanding the egolessness of self and then understanding the egolessness of phenomena and understanding the egolessness of self revolves around comparing the sense of self with our understanding of our body and mind and how they don't really match up in the traditional version of Vipassana and then progresses to an understanding of emptiness of, of uh, egolessness of dharmas of phenomena and that's where we go through the four stages where we begin to have a sense of the um, illusory like quality of the world that's constantly changing con infinitely compounded doesn't make sense without rhyme or reason all just sort of interacting phenomena propping each other up moment by moment and then coming back to after experiencing the the emptiness of the external coming back the so-called external and external really is just means object side of perception and then coming back to experiencing the perceiver and even though we understood and experienced to some extent egolessness of self there's still this sense of knowing egolessness i am experiencing emptiness and egolessness and then that has to be dropped that there's nobody home there's nobody who's owning that experience is the second stage of vipassana in the traditional scheme and then the third stage is letting go of the activity of understanding emptiness letting go of the antidote and these map onto the, bod the bodhicitta sorry the uh, lojong slogans and then finally just letting go just rest in the nature of alia and then how do we bring that into our world we continue to see the um, indivisibility of emptiness and appearance nicely uh, very poetically framed by Atisha as uh, 
in post-meditation be a child of illusion. And so Rimshke sort of goes all over the map, sometimes mixing up mindfulness and awareness, sometimes getting them very clearly mapped onto Shamajan Vipassana, other times not so nicely, other times awareness is part of shamatha. sometimes mindfulness is, is Vipassana. <laughs> sort of finger painting and going through different schemes and then uh, other times becoming very traditional, talking about Vipassana as uh, understanding egolessness, emptiness and describing the different stages of egolessness in great detail, the twofold egolessness egolessness of self and other and the two stages of egolessness not of other, of dharmas uh, the two stages of egolessness of dharma um, so I, I wanted to suggest one thing was that uh, like um, we went through a lot of material and you know maybe each little bit of it as we go through is is sort of clear it builds on itself and clarifies further the sort of general and specific understanding of what's going on and then there's certain threads that go throughout you know what is discriminating uh knowledge individual discriminating knowledge what is this or what is that but I encourage you to like go back and like look at particularly um, packages, numbers, uh, seven and nine. I think seven and nine for some reason I pulled out. I'm not sure why I skipped eight, but I think eight was more just like categories, but seven and nine, there's some great excerpts from Rimshe on what Vipassana is, and I, I highly recommend rereading Rimshe's presentations from those, where he describes how to do it, and a, a and you see, we see him like coming up with all these, these odd uh, phrases like we saw some tonight, odd ways of trying to give it a, an experience of what he's talking about, of Vipassana, describing it in all these different ways. We bring it along. What does that mean? We bring it along. Or it, it, it uh, comes from outside to inside. Froze. Yeah. I think so. He's just meditating. I'm going to guess his computer died. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think so.